history and politics absolutely talk to each other all the time. If we could study history, we could learn a lot about how we're dealing with each other right now. I would very much echo your call for much more conversation between the two subjects. To understand politics and really to understand any subject, you need to know the history. Hello and welcome to Dead Current, a podcast by History and Politics, where we look at current affairs through the lens of history. My name is Emily Glynn. And I'm Ed Selwyn Sharp. And today we are discussing popular memory, looking more specifically at Queen Elizabeth I and celebrations. We are delighted to be joined by Associate Professor Natalie Mears of the History Department at Durham. And Natalie <laughs> is a historian of Tudor and early Stuart politics and religion. Over her career, her research has focused on the posthumous reputation of political figures, namely Elizabeth I, courtly politics, um, as well as national and popular celebrations. Uh, thank you for joining us, Natalie, and welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. No worries. How have you been, Natalie? What have you been working on during lockdown? I'm, I'm doing well. Um, I'm on research leave um, and I'm, I'm sort of one of those worrying people where life in lockdown isn't actually substantially different from normal life. <laughs> um, I've been working on a number of things. Um, uh, and I, myself and Philip Williamson, one of the professors in the department, we've just finished another article um, which is on the gunpowder plot. Um, we've got some new ideas on that. Um, our article on um, Elizabeth's Succession Day has come out um, in, the in the journal History, and that's on free access for everybody for the next three months. And I've been working on the proposal um, for a book on the sort of popular or public memory of Elizabeth from 1603 to the present day. Um, and I've, I've literally just been working on the book proposal and working out my chapters and, and stuff like that. And that's a lot of that is based on work I've been doing over the past few years. And also actually I'm, I'm contemplating um, adding in or, or extending it um, at the end to think a lot more about some of the issues that have come up actually in the past week or so um, over empire statues um, and, and things like that. Perhaps we could start with um, that broader topic. Um, and can you tell us a bit more um, about how Elizabeth's popular memory was used in the, in the 17th century, um, as well as the, the end of the 16th century, um, before we get on to more of the contemporary um, stuff? Sure, so um, I think it's helpful just to understand, first of all, how history was used um, in sort of politics and um, both political practice and sort of political ideas so you don't um criticize the monarch really at all in 16th or early 17th century but if you do you do it subtly and so what you do is you use um sort of historical examples um instead and they can actually be from the very distant past as well as from the re recent past and indeed history is also important as if you like a politician or a governor or a magistrate as we would tend to think of them in the 16th century because it gave you um, one of the essential things about being a politician was being wise and virtuous um, and one of the ways you learned that was through history and specifically by learning how people in the past had responded to particular events and problems and then you sort of did the same thing now um, in terms of Elizabeth's own um, sort of image and particularly the kind of posthumous image of her um, 
she was used by a variety of people as a way of commenting on um, sort of present politics. And it, it's actually, as a historian, I, I'm increasingly finding it quite difficult because one of the things with Elizabeth is that she can more or less mean whatever you like. So most sort of um, commonly, and what a lot of historians have focused on, is her image as a Protestant champion. Um, particularly associated with the Spanish Armada. And so, for instance, um, she is used as a way, particularly by Puritans, um, who are the kind of more radical Protestants in the early 17th century, um, as a way of criticising Jacobean foreign policy and also Caroline foreign policy, in particular James. The reason for this is that James wants a more... Um, Pacific foreign policy doesn't actually want to be at war. He also wants to bring together Catholic and Protestant Europe. Um, and that's not popular um, with um, Protestants and Puritans because they've kind of grown up on this diet of um, the Catholics are horrible, there are enemies, the Spanish in particular are horrible, and um, we're the chosen nation, and we thrash them in the Spanish Armada, and they're just devious and horrible. On that yeah. note, um, thinking about sort of the popular opinions of the time, um, how, how do you think um, the memory of Elizabeth was used popularly? Was it used by politicians to sort of manipulate populace or was it much more complicated than that? Um, much more complicated. You do see the manipulation of this. So a really good example um, is in the Parliament of 1624 when Prince Charles, later Charles I, and his um, um, sort of best buddy, um, soon to be sort of major councillor, the Duke of Buckingham, really stoke up um, the sort of language of anti-Catholicism, anti-Spanish attitudes, in order to try and push James into a more aggressive foreign policy um, in Europe, um, which actually is in the middle of a, a, a war, which is primarily Protestants versus Catholics. Um, that said, um, one of the problems I've been finding is that a lot of the evidence we have comes from either an elite or a sort of semi-elite, a kind of slightly above middling sort. And so it's very difficult to know what's going on sort of below that. I think certainly there is um, a um, sort of popular perception of Elizabeth as a Protestant champion, as anti-Catholic, anti-Spanish, but how far that goes in terms of what we might think of as a kind of a, a, a personal political stance and how that affects your kind of idea of what the realm should be doing. Um, because of course war is all very well, but war is expensive and taxation falls primarily on the poor. Um, so there is certainly a, a big kind of popular perception of Elizabeth as, you know, good Queen Bess. Um, she was brilliant. Um, um, she, you know, she hates Catholics. She hates the Spanish. And of course, the, one of the things about Elizabeth is that she's not really like that, actually. Um, and this is one of the sort of problems of dealing with her um, uh, sort of mythologizing. Could you just, for the benefit of our audience, um, explain a little bit more um, the connection between politics and religion. 
Okay, so um, politics and religion are deeply intertwined in this period. Um, we need to think of religion um, perhaps very differently from how we think of it today. It really is a life and death um, uh, matter. Um, what happens sort of like here and now on earth will dictate where you go when you die. Um, and it's important to believe the right things and practice the right things. It's also not an overly tolerant society, whereas we would put a great um, premium on toleration um, and respecting other people's faiths or not having faith at all. That's a bad thing in this period because actually you're tolerating them believing the wrong thing and that actually can come back at you because God can be angry with you. So um, it's very, there are lots of simple things about the, yeah. um, the monarch after the Reformation is the person who effectively dictates the religion of the realm because it's, it's their religion um, and they're in charge of the church. But there are also other things about um, the, way people, the way people understand politics. So the main argument about um, causation is divine providence, that God has actually decided how everything is going to work you know, at the dawn of creation. Um, and so um, things like wars, plagues, famines, they are all actually divine interventions. They're warnings and sometimes punishments for you not sort of believing and doing the right thing. And that, that's the kind of belief that actually carries on actually into the 19th century. Um, and so your, um, if you like, your religious life and the way you behave actually is really intertwined with politics because if you're not godly enough, if you don't kind of, you're not pious and, you know, you try not to, you know, you, you sin too much and stuff, then God will, you know, collectively, you know, both you can be um, uh, sort of punished for this by God, but also the whole realm can be. Um, we also just have to remember that it's a period of religious division, um, both between Protestants and Catholics, if we're thinking of, of Europe, but also actually within Protestantism and Catholicism they're not kind of uniform sort of um, uh, sort of blocks of belief and because religion is so important therefore you get these sort of tussles within those groups and between them. Yeah if I could move us perhaps towards uh, broader comparisons with uh, the present day yeah. do you think a comparison could be made between how Elizabeth's popular memory was used and how we remember political figures today? Um I'm generally kind of quite um, uh, wary of um, making very uh, sort of direct connections. Um, I used to get asked this quite a bit when um, I'd be um, advising kind of TV researchers and stuff, um, particularly because they'd want me to make a connection between the disputes between Protestants and Catholics in the 16th century and between Christian Europe um, and Muslims um, and particularly with thinking of you know Catholics plotting against Elizabeth um, um, being the, what we could think of as the other um, something that, that we're not and I feel very very uncomfortable um, about that um, having said that um, I think and actually what I was working on a bit this morning was thinking um, about the sort of longer roots 
of some of the issues which are coming up in debate at the moment, particularly with things like Black Lives Matter and slavery. And actually one of the things I'm, I'm kind of interested in is there have been attacks on um, statues of people like Drake and Raleigh and at the renaming of a square um, um, named after Sir John Hawkins. And I'm interested as to what extent Elizabeth is going to come into this this debate or whether she's going to be kind of protected from it, that she's not a baddie. Um, so I think broadly um, it's useful and I'd hope that my work would have a relevance for both modern historians and modern commentators that yes the 16th and 17th century is a different period, we have kind of different technologies, the sort of social hierarchy is different, um, but that you don't just have to get your um, relevance from the, the modern period. Um, and also that the roots of what is going on today is not just from the past 100, 150, 200 years. And do you find your position as sort of an expert can be sometimes quite problematic um, and that people are expecting you to have a certain um, way that you're going to look at something? Um, yeah, I found it quite mixed, and I think it partly depends, um, uh, sort of, in sense who I'm working with. So at the moment, I I am actually working with some writers for a TV drama series, and um, there because and, and I'm quite happy because there are lots of factual inaccuracies going on here, but that for me is fine because it's an entertainment. It's not a documentary. Um, my job as I see it is to give them the benefit of my expertise and then they can do what, with it what they like because they've got a different agenda. Um, I think um, sort of in a more sort of factual sort of um, news element, um, I haven't um, had much experience of that and the, the stuff I was talking about, about um, the associations with Catholicism, um, that was quite a few years ago. Um, more generally, on that, I haven't been asked um, to fit into a particular narrative. So, for instance, I, I was talking about the Spanish Armada um, for um, an episode of Lucy Worsley's recent um, Greatest Royal Fibs. Um, and that... Um, program that program in particular the one on the reformation was very pitched in terms of brexit mm. um but i wasn't expected to um, link into that i think what gets me and actually particularly with the brexit debate is um the ignorance um that's what really really gets me i don't in a sense don't mind you being ignorant if you're working on, on entertainment but um when you first asked me about this um and you asked me, you know, what I thought about history and politics. The first thing that came into my mind was the Brexit debate and the Henry VIII powers. And it's just like, okay, that's not Henry VIII powers. Yes, Henry VIII did break from Rome. So you've got that sense of um, breaking away from an external, potentially superior authority. But the whole point of the, the break with Rome was it went through Parliament. Um, and so I, I've, I found it very frustrating that um, politicians in particular and also journalists were um, 
we're actually not perhaps really consulting with historians or perhaps not consulting with early modern experts um, to kind of get their facts right. Isn't that a problem which um, can be seen even in the 16th and 17th century? Allegories were used um, to criticise the monarch. Um, isn't entertainment today used in a similar way to criticise what's currently going on? Um, yes, yes, very much so. Um, I think I would make a distinction, though, between the kind, if you like, the entertainment side, um, where, in a sense, and I, th I think this is particularly when we, we look at a lot of the sort of recent sort of period dramas, that though they might be period dramas, they're really about the present day in, in many respects. But that's entertainment. So, so, Natalie, what do you think is the biggest difference then um, between political arguments at the time and contemporary political arguments? I think probably I would say um, accuracy and what we would think of as kind of fact checking or um, alternative facts. So um, I mean, this is often more noticeable actually in religious debates, um, but in polemical debates between sort of different sides, the thing that you had to do was get your facts right um, because if you didn't, then that just gave ammunition to your opponents. Um, and so though, so, so your, if you like, your facts had to be right, you might interpret their significance differently according to your political and or religious stance. And I think that's one of the most noticeable things that I see um, in a lot of debate over the past four or five years. Um, both actually, most obviously in, in Britain and in America, um, that you can kind of almost say what you want and provide you brazen it out, it's okay. And this seems a development from the kind of 1990s spin where it was just a gloss um, uh, on something that people could agree on. And now it's just, I can say what I like and it's an alternative fact um, rather than I'm making it up. I, I, I know your early work was into Lord Burley, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there seems to be another big political advisor whose surname begins with C. Um, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, do, do, do you think there are any sort of lessons to be learned? Are, are we living in a time ruled by the Cummings? Um, I, I, I think the, the lesson to be learned um, is that uh, we need more Burleys and fewer Cummings. Burleys. Burley, um, Burley was, um, he was very well educated. Okay, I guess Cummings is. Um, uh, and he was virtuous. Um, the, uh, and, and that the kind of um, 16th century politics um, is, but as an advisor, you need to be two things, wise and virtuous. Well, you actually need to be three because you need to be male as well. Um, but um, you, need to, um, you need to have the wisdom to be able to understand sort of what's going on and what the best advice is. Um, and, and, and being virtuous actually is part of that kind of discernment of what is good. Um, and so you also need to be frank so that means that you've got to tell the monarch 
what they should know rather than what they want to know. Do you think perhaps there's a broader message we can take away from that in how politicians do use history or don't use history or the entertainment industry use history in either a damaging way or there are lessons that can be learned from the way they are using it? Um, yes, I mean, I think I would... <laughs> Um, I think I would like Michael Gove, who always pretends he's an expert, to actually learn a bit more history. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I think I, I would like a little bit more respect for us historians, um, a little bit more willingness to, to ask us. Um, but also I think that there's a responsibility of us to actually communicate more. Um, so particularly... Um, Again, going back to the statues about erasing history and rewriting history, this sort of sense that history is monolithic, that it doesn't change, that there's a, a set history and somehow what's going on at the moment is unusual or wrong. It's like historians are constantly rewriting history. It's what our job is. Um, uh, the final chapter of Julian Barnes's A History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters um, actually um, sort of symbolises this really effectively. He's um, in heaven um, and the people who last longest in heaven before they ask to kind of die and have no consciousness are scholars and sort of historians and philosophers because they're endlessly learning new things and debating things and they eventually um, get fed up of it. But it's that sense that, you know, that is what we do. Um, and I think, um, you know, um, sort of uh, um, us ed perhaps educating the public a little bit more about what we do and what history is, um, I think would be worthwhile. Moving on, what do you think about, um your work in celebration, looking at uh, the use of celebrations. Yes, yeah, so, so a lot of the other work that I do, particularly with Philip Williamson, is about both um, petitionary um, church services um, and actions to seek God's sort of intervention and then thanksgivings, as well as um, annual anniversaries of big events. Um, I think... Um, yes, I think we could do with a, a Thanksgiving um, for the end of the pandemic. That would be nice and uh, 16th century of us, um, which is, um, you know, we'd celebrate. Well, I think we'd prefer to celebrate with feasting um, rather than perhaps all, all wanting to go to a church service and we could ring some bells. Um, that would be super. Um, I think that the, the, the sort of annual commemorations um, that, that they're interesting because they um, really show us quite a lot about national identity and both sort of ways in which people can come together, though also sometimes where um, uh, it creates divisions. Um, and so I think we perhaps we would want to look at the, the former rather than the latter. Um, in terms of bell ringing, um... Recently, every Thursday, people have been going out and clapping their hands. Do you think that um, the very action and the sound that's being created is important um, and is part of that? Are we harking back to our ringing of the bells? Yeah, so, so what you're, you're talking about is um, uh, both for um, Thanksgivings, 
um, and also anniversaries that one of the the key ways of celebrating or marking these was ringing of the, the parish bells um, uh, and so you have this kind of sort of soundscape um, which you really can't kind of get away from um, um, so yeah I think that um, you have some similarities with the clap for the NHS I think it strikes me as the clap for the NHS is more about the um, community and being outside and um, sort of gathered socially distant than the soundscape in a sense um, so I think there are I think it's more of a I, I put the emphasis on gesture rather than on sound for that and and do you think it um, it's suitable for it to end or perhaps should be an annual thing where we come together and everybody goes, goes out onto their streets um, to sort of celebrate by clapping their hands? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting, um, there's an interesting possibility as to whether or not we would have we or could have an anniversary for the end of a pandemic and this actually goes back to when would you have it? This, this is what happens when there are loads of occasions of both petitionary and thanksgiving prayers um, during various pandemics particularly the plague but also cholera and stuff like that and there's an issue about when do you have the thanksgiving so what's the either the death rate coming down but also whereabouts and it can be um in the in the 16th century it can often actually be very very london centric oh, well when the capital is like this then have a national thanksgiving um so i think that potentially throws up um issues also it's when does it in a sense end you know we know so little about um the coronavirus that is this something that is going to go on actually for years and years are we going to have some sort of definitive ending i suppose the other issue is those kinds of thanksgivings um, were religious um, uh, or at least were primarily religious occasions they were um, primarily uh, celebrated through a church service and then the the bell ringing the feasting um, the lighting of bonfires was a kind of a, an add-on and so therefore that raises questions um, today for um, not so much actually a, a multi-faith nation but as a, a nation where it is more people do not believe in something than, than do I would say that that's the issue rather than the multi-faith simply because the experience of what we call special worship of these kind of prayers and thanksgivings is something which from 18th century though it was a Church of England uh, practice it was something that actually ultimately brought together different churches and also different um, faiths. So not just Protestants and Catholics and dissenters, but Jews um, uh, and others. Um, so um, that was a way actually in which these things came together. Um, so I think it's more the kind of secularization um, issue that might be a problem um, or, or a difference, I guess. Yeah, definitely. If we could now return to the broader theme of the podcast as something of a conclusion, do you think history and politics should be promoted or is it more than it's worth? Um, yes, I think it should. Um, 
uh, as I've said earlier, it's partly because I think of sort of ignorance of uh, 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 the break with Rome. <laughs> um, no, I think it should because history, even if you're not doing sort of traditional political history, and if you're thinking about politics much more broadly, they are very closely intertwined. Um, our identity um, and um, yeah, our identity as individuals and as nations or communities is very much rooted in the past. Um, I think I would also go back to some of the 16th century stuff of, you know, you can learn from the past, perhaps not as quite directly um, as they might have thought in the 16th century. Um, uh, but it, it's still um, a, a sort of a, a valuable um, sort, of, um, sort of font of, of knowledge and experience. Um, to know um, where we've come from, why we're why we're here, why we're in the particular situation, um, but I also think that we've got to understand that history is not fixed and unchanging. What do you think is the biggest risk then? Um, if we ha- if you had to pick w- one thing um, that we we could do better, I think actually the foundation of this would actually have to be our history, and we have to recognise that. Um, the history um, which is um, sort of promulgated or popularly is the history of a white elite um, and that we need to face the really bad bits of our history um, and um, yeah we did that we need a, a broader understanding of what our history actually is I think that would be my my big thing Well, thank you very much, Natalie. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have today. And thank you, everyone listening at home. Don't forget to look out for our next podcast, as well as other events, articles and videos on our website and Facebook. And please, of course, like our page for more content on history and politics. Thank you for listening.